Hello, everybody. I'm Mary Caldor. Um, I'm one of the editors. I'm also co-director of the Centre for the Study of Global Governance. Uh, we're here because we're going to launch our latest Global Civil Society yearbook, which is called Poverty and Activism. And it's the eighth in a series. We published the first in 2001. And really the aim of producing these year after year was to start to think about globalization from a different point of view, from the people who participate in it. The idea somehow was that globalization is not this sort of abstract process that we can't do anything about. It's actually a process that people make. It's the result of human endeavor. And we usually think it's the result of big multinational corporations. But it's not just that. It's the result of all kinds of people and groups. And, uh, uh, and so we called it Global Civil Society in a way not only to try to understand globalization, but also to give all those people a greater legitimacy. So that's been the purpose of the project. And, and we've now been through a period of nearly 10 years. And we've learned an awful lot during that period. It's been a kind of intellectual journey, I think. And it seems to me that one of the most important conclusions that's emerged is that actually change in the world, or, or, or particularly sort of political change, doesn't seem to take place because you've elected the right politicians who make decisions, although we're all quite hopeful about President Obama. But it takes place because change bubbles up and ideas bubble up and you, and, and you suddenly get a sea change in the way people think about things. And you can see this, for instance, in the climate change, in, in the way that people think about climate change. And so really thinking about global civil society is about thinking about that, thinking about all the different ideas that are floating around and how you communicate them and how they change, if you like, the framework of thinking of all the different institutions and agencies. So that's, in a way, I think our biggest discovery. And this year, our focus was on poverty. Um, as probably everybody in this room knows, one-sixth of the world, our world's population, are extremely poor. They're known as the bottom billion. They're the people, well, Sally's going to talk about how you count who they are, but one way of saying is they're the people who live on less than a dollar a day. And in order to produce this yearbook, we went to India, and we collaborated with the Tata Institute for Social Studies, and something like a quarter of the world's poor live in India. So India's a very good place to try to produce a book about, about poverty and activism. And actually, that in itself was a really good idea. And, and you'll see it when, when you come to look at the yearbook, that we somehow managed to interchange the global and the local, the Indian perspective and the non-Indian perspective. And that's been a very interesting outcome, which we didn't quite expect from our discussions in Mumbai. Um, and um, I think if, if I try to think about what came out of the book and what we learned and 
in a way, what are the big messages? There's lots and lots in it, and I'm not going to describe it or summarize it. One was the need to rethink what we mean by global civil society, because actually we found everybody in India was really against global civil society. <laughs> they thought it was a terrible idea. They thought it was full of Western NGOs who had their own ideas about what to do. And it's something that we've kept on talking about right from the beginning, that actually civil society isn't just about NGOs. It's about people changing things themselves. It has a normative component. But it really came home to us in the Indian context. So that's one issue. And the other was that the poor, there's no such thing as the poor or poverty as a state. And we tend to think about the poor as an abstract category. And we think about poverty as a sort of static state. And what became absolutely clear is that people who are called poor are, I don't know, slum dwellers, prostitutes, Dalits, tribals, they're individuals and they're very, very different and you can't really, um, you can't really generalize about them. But also that poverty isn't a state. Uh, being in that situation which is called poor is being in a situation where you have to use all kinds of ingenious and innovative tactics to survive, and you're constantly faced with obstacles. So that our Indian friends, particularly Smitu, who's written a wonderful chapter and who sadly died, actually just as we were editing it, said we had to call it impoverishment. So I think those are the two big things that came up and it was interesting somehow that the doing the book coincided with coming out of Slumdog Millionaire <laughs> and we were sort of talking to, there's a nice little box about that we were talking to many of the, those Slumdog Millionaires that were, that they were the characters who participated and whatever criticisms I think it enormously brought home this sort of double aspects of what it is to be called poor, both to be ingenious and clever and finding your way around it and to be constantly confronted with endless obstacles. Now, in order to sort of bring all this out in a different way, we, we, we decided to have this exhibition, Viewing Restricted, which all of you should go and see. Uh, it's in the atrium and it's really fantastic. And um, it, it, because it's called Viewing Restricted, it doesn't mean it's restricted. It's open every day, <laughs> and you can go and see it. And it's, what I think is really interesting, it's another way of making all the points I've just been making. It's another way of representing. Um, and in that sense, I think we've been trying, especially the last two issues, to experiment with different ways of getting across ideas. So in the last yearbook, we had a cartoon exhibition. And this time, we've had this photography exhibition. I think particularly, I thought, looking at it today, the Mumbai and the Shanghai stories are just so amazingly, were inspirational in a curious way. Um, so it's well worth going to look at and it really does 
make this argument about representation. I think we're also very grateful to LSE Arts for coming in with us on all this. It really shows how you can bring together the social sciences and the arts. Now, finally, just a couple of words of thanks, although I know other people are going to make thanks. I, first of all, Ashwani Kumar, who's one of our, our artist editor who couldn't be here today. But secondly, and most importantly, a thanks to Fiona Holland, who's our managing editor who actually was the, what you see is there's a huge long list of editors and we were rather an um, undisciplined bunch of editors. <laughs> and we never could make up our minds and in the end, Fiona had to do all of that. And she single-handedly organized the exhibitions. And well, she's just, it, it does look really beautiful and that's all due to her. And it's an extraordinary task having to manage this really complicated process involving activists, social scientists, now photographers. <laughs> so that's a big thank to Fiona. And now I'm going to introduce our speakers who are going to be talking today. Um, we will start with Ruth um, Katamuri. Ruth really represents the relationship with TIS here at the LSE. She works, um, she, she really uh, helped set up the Indian Observatory here at LSE and also the IG Patel Chair. And she works on HIV AIDS, anthropology, population, climate change, India. And she's going to anyway be the TIS person today. And we're terribly grateful to her because without her, we would never have got this collaboration going. Uh, after her, we have Sally. Sally's been our methodological whiz kid on the yearbook. We, we've always tried to produce data at the back, both to give people hard information, but also it's part of the legitimization process. People feel something exists if you can count it. <laughs> and Sally's experimented with methods of counting and is going to talk about how difficult that is. <laughs> then um, we have Teresa. Hanley, who's somebody who's not an academic but is very much involved in all kinds of in international development programs, in all kinds of NGOs, uh, and she works on poverty in many different areas, so she will talk to us. And finally, we have David Campbell, who's probably well known to many of you uh, as a very distinguished academic, um, really pioneering the whole area of thinking about discursive and interpretative approaches to international relations, which I think, anyway, is very, very important. So let's start with Ruth. Yeah. I, I must say I'm pleased with this uh, unusual occurrence of uh, gender imbalance in favor of women on the panel. Um, as Mary was saying, my role here is essentially to talk about the LSE-TIS collaboration. Um, <coughs> I have been involved in the background with helping develop this relationship as well as um, creating the engagement as uh, for uh, this output. Um, so I'm going to talk mainly about the relationship and you have um, the other speakers going to talk about the chapters and the actual contents of the book. Um, and 
I was also told that I should talk about the inspiration behind the LSE TIS collaboration. And I'm going to talk about it in two parts. And the first thing um, about the first aspect of what was the inspiration behind this collaboration is um, what I like to call knowledge exchange. And when I took on the role of um, LSEs, how to consolidate LSEs India activities, the thing that motivated me was to develop a collaborative knowledge exchange between what we do at the LSE with local collaborators, with local knowledge, and to develop that to create a greater body of knowledge, global knowledge. So that was what I set out to do. And one of my first contacts was with the Tata companies. And I'm sure many of you now know a little bit more about Tata than you did um, maybe five years ago. The fact that Tetley is owned by the Tata company, I'm sure still many people don't know about this. But I'm quite impressed by that company because it's been, um, this is a company where 66% of its profits are given into trusts and foundations. So it doesn't go, um, and, that, and it's given to a lot of charitable work. And so corporate social responsibility has been something integral to this company right from its beginning about 100 years ago. So that, I was talking to the chairman of the trust, um, and he immediately caught on this vision of the exchange of knowledge between the LSE's theoretic expertise with the local ground knowledge at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. And because the Tata company is quite closely connected or involved with the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, it had founded it, although TIS is now, I shall use TIS for Tata Institute of Social Sciences, um, is now an independent university, but it's still supported quite strongly by the Tata Trust. So he immediately caught on that vision, and he has been a key person in um, um, making this possible and in actually supporting the outcome um, for funding this, this five-year collaboration through the Jamshadji Tata Trust. The second person I um, then worked with is the director of the Tata Institute of Social Sciences itself, um, Professor Parsuraman, who couldn't be here today, but who has asked me to represent both him and Tis as well today. Um, has been a great motivator and also very committed to the growth and development of the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. He has, in the time he's been the director there, taken it um, far, greatly advanced in, in the amount of things and the activities that they do. So I work closely with him. So we worked together for about two years till we could actually sign this off in June 2007. And I'm happy to say that there are few TIS um, faculty and researchers in the audience. Um, and this yearbook is the first output of this collaboration, and I'm very pleased to be here to participate in the launch of this. And it's also an example of um, having truly achieved a successful collaborative volume. And if you buy the book for 20 pounds, which is outside. I'm I sure forgot to say that. <laughs> 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 I'm sure you'll see uh, I mean what I'm saying. And just to show, uh, and I'm going to quote here a little bit from the introduction, which shows that the purpose of this book truly fits in with the wider purpose of the collaboration. 
It says, in order to encompass the global nexus, global local nexus, this yearbook was produced collaboratively with the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. Chapters that focus on India and are written by Indian authors alternate with chapters that deal with general global concerns. It is through global local interchange that some answers begin to take shape and the hope that poverty may be ultimately eradicated begins to transcend national boundaries, cultural barriers, and ethnic prejudices, end of quote. And I believe both TIS and LSE have greatly benefited through this collaboration. So the second aspect of my motivation um, has been um, equal opportunities. Um, I th and this is kind of contextual with the theme of the book. Uh, and I'm also going to take um, the case study from my own life experience and elaborate a little bit more about that. So in, in the experiences of my life, what I have learned is that poverty also exists when equal skills are not commensurate with equal opportunities. Um, <coughs> so this is taking a case from my own life, and I will bring in some other references as well. Um, so my father had unexpectedly died when I was three years old. And so that what was happening was my family's earning was below what is called the official poverty line with what is called in the book a shortage of income with less than a dollar a day. But it wasn't that which was frustrating, but what was more, more frustrating through my childhood was the inability to access opportunities in spite of having capabilities on par with my peers. And I had to live with this reality, even though I was top of class in academics as well as sports, because of the economic, social, cultural, and governance constraints, many opportunities were not accessible to me. So the recently made famous Lumdog Millionaire has been weaved through the pages of this book, as uh, Mary has already referred to this. This film was made from Vikas Varup's book called Q&A. He's an Indian government official in the Foreign Service. He'll perhaps achieve a lot more in making a real difference to poverty in India through this one book compared with his entire official career. When I was a child, uh, when I saw the child actors in Slumdog Millionaire walking the red carpet at the Oscars, I was very happy for the kids. It was also interesting to see that they walked the red carpet as confidently as they would in the streets of Mumbai. For them, it didn't matter where they were. Um, I then remembered how, in my childhood, I had often wished for an escape out of my poverty. But the next scene I saw related to the slumdog millionaire was when the tired children were returned to Bombay. They were mobbed by the crowds at the airport. And you could see their expressions wanting to say or conveying that all they wanted was to be left alone. And the next scene I saw was the Indian fashion designers touting these same children at the Delhi Fashion Week for their own profit. I then wondered if this was very different from child labor. And I have no regrets that none of the dramatic things I wished for to get me out of my childhood poverty happened to me. On the other hand, 
I providentially enjoyed the miracle of free education in the best schools in the country. I went on to become a lecturer in the late 1980s. I officially quit poverty and was included among the top 5% of Indian society with an income of $4 a day. I was not wishing for dramatic interventions anymore and was even able to start influencing for the benefit of others. However, even as a lecturer at that time at one of the top 10 universities in the country, I still did not have access to opportunities to achieve my potential. It has been a long journey and interesting one to be where I am today. These experiences have given me the motivation to enable opportunities for others to involve, engage in quality work. And this has also been a motivation for making this LSETIS collaboration happen. Many of the discussions in this book are related to my life experiences. This has expertly touched upon various aspects related to poverty and for promoting its alleviation in the world. And I'm sure there'll be many more exciting things coming from the Center for Global Civil Society and Disengagement. I think you've been absolutely amazing <laughs> to have overcome all the obstacles which we heard about and to have got where you have got. Uh, let me now turn to Sally, who will explain what that one dollar a day <laughs> might or might not mean. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I want to say a few things about one of the, the most prominent and powerful ways of constructing poverty, and that is poverty statistics. Um, poverty statistics are a major source of evidence that we use in the fight against poverty to try to understand it. We use it, poverty statistics to try to map trends in poverty, to inform debates about whether economic globalisation is good for the poor or bad for the poor. Poverty statistics are key tools for policy makers. So the very first uh, target indicator of the UN's Millennium Development Goals is couched in terms of a poverty statistic. To halve between 1990 and 2015 the proportion of the global population who live on less than a dollar a day. Poverty statistics are also key tools in political communication and in public communication. They're used to shock and to mobilize support for poverty reduction initiatives. So the dollar a day statistic is one example which is widely used. Um, another example comes from the Make Poverty History campaign, which was launched a number of years ago. As part of that campaign, we were invited to participate in Clicking Our Fingers to illustrate a statistic that a child dies as the result of poverty every three seconds. So poverty statistics are powerful, but they're also controversial, and they're frequently the subject of a very fierce critique. Now, not all of the critiques about poverty statistics are sensible, in my opinion, and I want to start by debunking the misinformed critique, which adopts in a literal way the aphorism that there are lies, there are damned lies, and there are statistics. Now, of course, statistics can be used intentionally to give a distorted and a partial portrayal of reality, just as any other form of representation can be abused. But as a general statement about the truth value of statistics, this idea that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics is simply based on a misconception about the nature of social measurement. This is the nature of social measurement. Before you can calculate a poverty statistic, you need to define the concept of poverty. 
property, or you need to generate a theoretical model of property, then you have to choose or develop a system for representing the elements of that theoretical model by means of a system of numbers. Now, numbers work together in ways which have their own self-contained logic. Mapping these two things together, a conceptual theoretical model of poverty and a system of numbers, is always a compromise. It always entails a number of choices. Firstly, pragmatic choices. What do we want to find out and what can we find out from the data that we're collecting? It also entails some theoretical choices. And that's because when we conceptualize poverty, we have to draw on some framework of understanding about the world out there. This might be a highly overtly political framework, or it may be a framework which seems apparently detached and neutral. But there's always some framework of understanding in, in play. At the very least, as social creatures, we can't escape drawing on the schemas and the heuristics and the scripts which we're socialized into, which enable us to navigate a path simply through daily life. So social measurement is a process of selection, like any representation. It draws on worldviews. So there's limited value in the idea that statistics might lie or tell the truth, right? that they might be correct or incorrect. And as the statistician, George Box famously said, and very usefully, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Okay? So the helpful and the constructive critiques of statistics are those which judge them in context, in terms of their usefulness or their fitness for purpose. And debates about fitness for purpose are inherently tied up with debates about purposes themselves. And in the field of poverty reduction, this leads to heated arguments and it leads to different conceptualizations of poverty and therefore to different approaches to measuring poverty. And I'd like to give you some examples now of different ways of measuring poverty. The most common, commonly used uh, poverty statistics um, are those which we might call money metrics. So they describe usually some feature of the income or consumption levels of a population as a basic indication of people's capacity to provide for themselves. So you have on the one hand um, data from national accounts giving country level income per capita, GDP, GNI and so on. On the other hand, you have statistics derived from household surveys which record information about uh, wages and other income and goods and services that people consume for representative samples of households from a population. And the poverty statistics drawn from these household surveys usually involve defining a poverty line or a threshold of income or consumption below which people would struggle to make ends meet. And then simply estimating, not simply, but estimating the number of people who live below that standard. And the very first poverty lines were those constructed by uh, Charles Booth and Seaburn Roundtree in the UK at the, in the turn of the 20th century. And they specified the minimum household income needed to provide just enough food and shelter for immediate survival. And poverty lines, particularly in developing countries, continue to be drawn according to these subsistence criteria. By contrast, in higher income countries, um, the practice is usually to set a poverty line with reference to the spread of income amongst the population. So European governments, for example, tend to set the poverty line at 60% of the median income in the population. So under this model, if the rich become richer, all else being equal, then the poverty line moves up. More people are classified as poor. Now these money metrics often come under the criticism that they provide a narrow view of what poverty is and imply also a narrow view of what policies should be used to, to tackle poverty. So there are a number of alternative, broader poverty measures, 
which have been designed. For example, there's a set of statistics which stem from Amartya Sen's definition of poverty as a lack of basic capabilities that one needs to, in order to achieve an acceptable quality of life. Capabilities include knowledge, health, and freedom. And then income is one type of commodity that can be used to realize some of those capabilities. And this theoretical model fits well with a human development approach to poverty. And for example, the UNDP uh, uses this theoretical approach as a framework for its human poverty index, which is a composite indicator of data on life expectancy and literacy and health and sanitation, so moving away from purely monetary measures. Then there's another set of statistics uh, inspired by Peter Townsend's concept of relative deprivation, according to which poverty means lacking or being denied the resources to participate in social life as defined by current societal norms. So this fits well with a social exclusion approach to poverty, and statistics on exclusion and on deprivation follow this model. So there are different conceptualizations of poverty which lead to different statistics. And different poverty statistics tell different stories about who, who is poor. They tend to be weakly correlated with each other, in fact. They classify different people as poor. So they are simply different representations of poverty. And they're differently problematic also in terms of their methodologies. <coughs> so for example, most of the basic capabilities, measures of poverty, don't include indicators on political freedom, even though this is a really important theoretical part of their framework simply because it's terribly difficult to collect data on political freedom and to define them in quantitative terms. Most of the monetary measures rely on household surveys and they have their own problems associated with them. They rely on household respondents recalling their consumption patterns over the, the previous month and that is a difficult and an error-prone task. And if you change the recall period, for example, you get different results. So recently in India, they ran an experiment where they asked some people to recall their consumption over a month and some people to recall their consumption over a week. And those who recalled their consumption periods over a week reported consuming more goods overall. I mean, they forgot fewer of the things which they consumed. So if you use a recall period of, of a week, the poverty rate actually declines. So what does global civil society contribute to the field of poverty statistics? Well, on the one hand, some global civil society actors are simply fairly uncritical consumers and users of poverty statistics, particularly international, large international NGOs uh, who use poverty statistics, such as the dollar a day for their political punch, are fairly uncritical users. But there are others who contribute a great deal to the good scrutiny and the helpful critique of poverty statistics. And I'd like to give you just a few examples. One example is that many academics contribute very valuably by debating the validity and the reliability of statistics which are already widely used. There is, for example, a lively and often acrimonious ongoing dialogue regarding the methodology of the World Bank's uh, dollar-a-day statistic between Martin Revalian of the World Bank and the academics Sanjay Reddy and Thomas Pogger. And this is particularly useful because the dollar-a-day appears to be a very simple statistic appears to have a very simple con concrete meaning for us. But in fact, when you unpack it, it's a very complex <coughs> construction. So for example, calculating the number of people in India who live on less than a dollar a day means converting a US dollar into Indian rupees using purchasing power parity, or PPP, conversion factor. And this means finding out how many rupees would be needed to buy in India the equivalent bundle of goods that you could buy in the US for a dollar. 
And the PPP factor is derived from price surveys of a fixed bundle of goods, which covers the prices of basic commodities, but also luxury goods and services. So Reggie and Pog, amongst others, draw attention to the anomaly that in these PPP formulae, don't differentiate the consumption patterns of the poor from those of the rich. So for example, all else being equal, if in India the price of a luxury good in the bundle falls, the official spending power of a dollar equivalent of Indian rupees will rise. So the number of Indians counted as poor will decrease, even though these people are not consuming the luxury good. So Pogger and Reddy and, and others are engaged in debates about how we can make fair comparisons between countries, how we can aggregate poverty statistics. Other people are engaged in debates facing the other way, that is, arguing about how poverty statistics should be disaggregated or broken down into smaller units. For example, women's NGOs have been highly influential in the push to break down poverty statistics, which are traditionally collected at the household level, by gender. To, in order to generate data on the particular vulnerability of, of women to poverty. And this is a great example of using evidence from grassroots work with particular communities, particular social groups, to inform the development of meaningful statistics. So to improve what we have, to increase the variety of angles on poverty that statistical representations can provide. There's also a good deal of work on generating new perspectives on poverty, using existing data but reformulating them to fit different theoretical conceptions of poverty. So for example, the NGO Social Watch uses World Bank data, but uses World Bank data to create its own basic capabilities index, so reformulating them according to their, to their own theoretical model. And lastly, there are organisations formulating new alternative poverty statistics and collecting new data. And in the UK alone, there is, for example, the Townsend Centre at Bristol University, there's the Oxford uh, Poverty and Human Development Initiative, and the Chronic Poverty Research Centre at Manchester University. These are just a, a very few examples of good work that's being done, sharing expertise and insights to debate existing statistics and to generate new ones. And the more participation there can be in this field, the better. Not only because more information is better per se, but also, more importantly, because it's people who design and collect statistics, people with particular worldviews and particular interests, and because debates about poverty are highly politically charged, and because then the more perspectives that can be brought to bear on the nature of the evidence provided by poverty statistics, the better. I highly recommend you to read this chapter because it's really useful to help you make sense of all these different statistics. Teresa. As Mary said, I, I work part of the time on international development and humanitarian issues, but also today I'm speaking with my, my other hat, which is to bring in the UK perspective, because I manage a programme for the Joseph Roundtree Foundation on public interest in poverty. That's UK public and it's UK poverty, so bringing in that, that UK perspective into, into the, the discussion. So first of all, some statistics, because it seemed appropriate. <laughs> Uh, as we've heard then, the, the, the definition of poverty that's used in the UK is one that's based on income, and it is relative. So if you're below the 60% um, of median income, you're defined as poor in Britain, which means that nearly one, over one in five people in Britain are defined as poor. That includes ne uh, nearly one in three children, one in five pensioners, 
Um, and those figures, whilst they came down over the past 10 years, are beginning to, to go back up again at the moment. But maybe an interesting trend is this issue that there's an increasing um, segregation, really, within the UK of people who are on very high and very low incomes. This has been mapped by Danny Dorling up at Sheffield University, and we can see that there's sort of less and less contact between the two groups, less, um, which is one person in a, a workshop which uh, we I, I ran as part of uh, my work at JRF described as us, we're all living in ghettos. We, we, we're with people who are like us and we don't uh, connect with people that often who are not like us. So that's the statistics, but maybe more importantly is to look at how people who are experiencing poverty describe it themselves and what, what words they use for that. These are just some quotes from people who participated in a number of workshops for one of our, our research projects. And they talk about um, living day by day, the panic of finding extra money, being chased for bills and so on. But also, maybe more importantly, they begin to get to the issues of stigma and feeling of disempowerment that being on a, a low income can bring. Uh, and maybe it's through these, some of these types of quotes that we begin to see that the experience of poverty is not so different wherever you are around the world. There's certainly commonalities here with other parts of, of the world. The, what I wanted to say a little about is about the discourse on poverty in the UK. How is it communicated in public domains? I'll look particularly at the media in a little while, but um, through, from our work of looking at how is poverty talked about in various public domain, we've seen three main trends come through. One of those is, if it's not too much of a contradiction in terms, is that the, the, the discourse is quite um, silent, really. There's, there's not much coverage of UK poverty in the UK media. The, we found in qualitative work that most members of the public are quite uncomfortable talking about poverty. They don't have terminology to use to describe British poverty or images to describe poverty in the 21st century and intend, instead tend to hark back to old images of Dickensian times or the extremes of homelessness and so on. And maybe this is partly because um, people who are on, on low incomes in the UK rarely will, for obvious, for well, understandable reasons, would want to come forward and say that they are poor and, and speak out about it. It's not an identity you want to claim in the UK. It's quite a stigmatised identity. That's one uh, main strand. A second strand within the discourse is that when poverty is described, it, it tends to, well, what Ruth Lister describes as other um, people who are experiencing poverty. So people are, who are on low incomes are not active participants so much in, that, and in the analysis and in the debate, but they're described as being this, the subject, the object of be it media coverage or other debates. This example is, um, I'm sure sympathetically written by a journalist describing the savings club that collapsed there a couple of years ago, uh, Fairpack, and talked about how these people are to be applauded when they, when they save. So presumably not expecting these people to be his readers or viewers or, or listeners. So that's the second trend. And then the third trend, which is picked up um, in the introduction to the, the yearbook, uh, and where it's outlined very clearly that it's been a long-term trend in the discourse about poverty, is that there's, there's a strong judgmental aspect to, to the discourse. 
people are viewed, some people are viewed as deserving of social support, society support, and many others are viewed as undeserving. Uh, this comes through in public attitudes in the UK, where we see here nearly a third of the British public think that people in Britain are poor due to their own laziness and lack of willpower. And that, that number's actually increasing. This year's figure is slightly higher. And only less than one in five people here see poverty as a result of social injustice. So therefore, as a, an issue and, and a, 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 a trend that should be addressed and can be addressed. I want to say a little bit about the media coverage, because certainly in a UK context, that's one of the main areas where debate takes place, where opinions are shared, and, and, and so on. We commissioned Glasgow Caledonian University to do a review of how UK poverty is covered in the media, looking at all different formats, news, non-news, entertainment, and so on, looking at different types of media, print, radio, uh, television, and online. Um, and also local media and, and national and regional media. And what they found is that, yes, yeah, certainly there is, there is poverty. Um, it, it is covered in the media, be it in the news, in these headlines about uh, benefits, or in documentaries. Or here we have um, Shameless, uh, which, is described, which covers a family which is uh, coping on a very low income. For any Scots or others, Rabsi Nesbitt is a comedian who also covers issues around, around poverty. So that there is poverty in the media. But when we look more closely at it uh, and analyse what, what there is, one is that there's a bit, but there's not a lot. But maybe more importantly, the, the coverage that is there is very superficial. It tends to home in on sort of targets, maybe because we've got a clear target in the UK of ending child poverty by 2020. That's picked up on, and government progress or lack of it towards that. But causes of poverty, consequences of it, possible solutions for it are, are not really covered in the media. And in particular, um, there's an absence of the, the experience of poverty. Be that whether it's in the news, then uh, I think it's something like one in eight, less than one in eight news reports include the voice of somebody who is coping uh, on a low income. Less than one in eight have any image of poverty. Um, but also in entertainment programs, soap operas, there's, the experience of being on extreme poverty is absent. And this is a type of program that we maybe expect to reflect real life. But usually, whatever soap opera you watch, most of the time, everybody can afford to buy a round of drinks, and so the, the extremes are not there. And nor are the aspects of people moving in and out of a state of poverty either, that, that movement. To, to try to understand that, the team looked a little bit at the editorial process and, and found that, yes, journalists, editors, and others have a very sort of, uh, clear view of what they think the, the, their public, their audience, wants to see. And so what they choose to put in the media tends not to, to um, challenge the assumptions and the stereotypes that they, they think are out there. They, they think that people want to be reassured that the reason that some are on, better, on higher incomes and are better off than others is um, for good reasons. Um, they don't think that poverty is news. They say, you know, to, to quote one, poverty is old, it's not new, therefore it's not news, so why should we look at it? But... In many ways, it's very easy to blame the media for all sorts of things. It's certainly common in the UK to blame the media for all sorts of problems, I think. And, and we, we certainly found in our research that actually the public engages with the media and its coverage in quite a critical way. 
So either they may feel that their, their own experience is different from what the, the, the coverage of poverty that they see, so they, they will um, question the, the coverage. There's also deep distrust of the media here in Britain, with um, one quote there showing that the, uh, the participant says she doesn't even believe the TV listings, never mind analysis of deep issues or more critical issues. Uh, and also people are aware that sometimes uh, they, they think programmes are making entertainment out of the, the situation that people are, are living in and, and programmes are being made in that way. And also there's, there's a number of people in the media who are trying to make um, in-depth coverage and con contribute to a constructive discussion on UK poverty. So be that in documentaries, uh, there's a number of programmes like The Tower or Rich Kid Poor Kid which have been made which try to explore both the experience and the reasons for poverty and how it can be uh, addressed. But they have small audiences. But there's also other programmes which have tried different formats, some controversial, not universally supported, certainly from civil society, um, but, some, but which may get a, a larger audience and bring the experience of UK poverty to bring a bigger audience than some of the, the other um, types of feature. One of those is Newsround, which um, is a picture of right at the end there, which is a children's program, where child, stories of um, children who are living in poverty were depicted through animation to, to respect their um, identity, uh, and linked with the children going to talk to policymakers to ask, well, what are you going to do about this? What can you do? Um, and the programme then linked to the website and the, the programme makers, to their surprise, um, found that they got more hits on the website for that item than that they did for anything else that year. So it seems that if it's done in the right way, um, serious issues can be picked up by then, but that's in that case by a children's audience. But those who are working in the media do face constraints in that they, they're dealing with um, limited finance and also editors, as we mentioned before. Um, who maybe don't agree that uh, some of the programmes should be made. But beyond the media, just briefly, of course, there's other places where poverty is discussed and debated and where opinions are reflected and shaped. One of those is around the political discourse. Uh, and in a review, in work research we've done into the way that the various political parties and the terminology that's used, it, it highlighted that, that much of the language that's used by politicians does nothing to challenge stereotypes, negative stereotypes of people on low income. So we hear a lot about hardworking families and the government's always very keen to appear to be tough on benefit fraud, maybe reinforcing a view that there's an awful lot of it going on, which isn't necessarily the case if you compare it to tax evasion and other um, <laughs> aspects. There's um, also the fact that choices tend to be put forward um, without a sort of coherent framework. An analysis IPPR did for us last year of all the five um, parties, so looking at SNP and Plaid Cymru as well as the three main UK parties, showed that they all talk about, yes, we, they will support economic growth, social mobility, they're reducing inequality, promote prosperity, but n did not present them within a coherent framework, which maybe allows some choices that would have to be made to be disguised. And then lastly, an important player, of course, in this is civil society, which does a lot within the UK setting as well as international to try to inform and influence po uh, policy which can address poverty. We've looked at uh, and worked with civil society organisations to look at many of their campaigns uh, and what's worked and what hasn't in terms of 
engaging the public in a, in a debate on, on UK poverty. And what we found was that um, some of the towns are very successful at building awareness and shocking people that, using, using statistics sometimes, um, shocking people that poverty exists, the extent to which it exists, and the, how dreadful an experience it, it is in a British setting. But what tends not to be happened is that there, there is less work, if any, really, that's, that then builds on that in, in the public domain to, to build an understanding for why poverty exists and why it persists and to debate the possible solutions to that. Within a UK setting, that's partly because um, many of the messages and issues are quite fragmented in that civil society organisations are focused on maybe particular groups like the older people or children or locations like poverty in London, Scottish poverty, or issues such as fuel poverty or um, living wages. Uh, and so that, together with some of the difficulties of coalition working um, across organisations, makes building up a, a broader public understanding and analysis of the existence of why poverty exists and a debate about solutions to eradicate it more, more difficult. But finally, the, it's not all um, sort of doom and gloom. There are definite opportunities which are arising at the moment, which mean that we can build a more constructive and inclusive debate on, on poverty in the UK and maybe internationally too. One of those is with the growth of new media that, uh, that gives an opportunity for people to speak directly about their experiences and to uh, participate in the analysis of poverty without the mediation of traditional media editors and so on. Of course, you need to take, have access to the technology and also need to create content that people will come and look at um, for that to, to work. Second opportunity, oddly maybe, is the current recession that we've seen in the past that attitudes towards poverty have shifted. There's a, there's a greater understanding of its existence within a recession, maybe because people are experiencing it themselves or they're more likely to know somebody else who is. So those judgmental attitudes shift. So the, the current recession provides an, an opportunity to, to build a more constructive dialogue on, on poverty eradication. And finally, we're seeing that in research we're doing at the moment that there's a real appetite within the UK for a debate on values and what values we want to be driving society. Some of that comes from debates at the moment about deservingness, maybe for those who are on very high incomes as well as on low, um, but also could link up with a, a more global debate. As Mary mentioned at the beginning, some of the issues around climate change, globalisation and so on could be brought into those. So there's certainly opportunities at the moment to build a, a more inclusive and constructive dialogue on UK poverty and globally. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and let's hope we can contribute to that. David. Um, as a member of the exhibition committee for the viewing restricted yes, 
um, exhibition <laughs> that uh, is part of uh, this whole process and linked to the yearbook. I just wanted to make a kind of a few brief remarks about the question of the visual representation of poverty because the whole purpose of the exhibition um, was to raise that issue um, and make it part of the overall exercise. I mean, poverty itself is a representation that exists through a series of representations, and Sally set out extremely well how statistics functions in that way. Um, but the visual representation is central to common understandings about poverty too. Indeed, in many ways, poverty has a very familiar face, literally a familiar face. And in some of Teresa's observations about the media, you saw the way in which those faces appeared, <laughs> although in the case of Britain, not as often um, as might have been justified by the statistics itself. But when it comes to thinking about poverty globally, that familiar face is pretty common and pretty abundant. It's a face of the child or a face of the woman in a state of deprivation. Uh, nearly always uh, individuals, at best one or two, passive uh, and somehow awaiting some form of intervention. I mean, for many in the UK, for many in Europe and, and the US as well, the, the, the figure, the face of people in Ethiopia has become, in thinking about poverty globally, one of the most dominant representations. And in the introduction to the yearbook, there's a discussion about the role in which Make Poverty History and Live 8, uh, the 2005 campaign uh, uh, to get the G8 to pay greater attention <clears throat> to poverty, discussion about the role uh, of that campaign. What's not there, but is sort of implied in a way, is a discussion about the visuals in that campaign. And what was most striking about Live 8 in 2005 was that it recycled imagery from Live Aid in 1984. And this is an example of the recycling and one of the most powerful uh, moments in that imagery, a photograph taken in Manchester because, of course, the conference was broadcast uh, around the UK. And it shows the face uh, of a woman by the name of Burhan Waldu, who was a child in 1984 in the Tigray province um, of Ethiopia, uh, and who became the subject uh, of a very well-known video clip that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation put together uh, as a fundraising exercise. And when shown as part of the live aid uh, um, operation uh, in 1984, literally generated and, and drove telephone calls uh, uh, to, to the call centres uh, and produced a huge amount of charitable income because people connected with uh, this particular face uh, and this particular person um, in the video. In 2005, not only was the imagery of Burhan Waldu in 1984 recirculated and represented, even though Live 8 was supposedly about justice rather than charity, even though its whole sort of modus operandi and, and ethos was supposedly different, the visual imagery it was working with was exactly the same and kind of locked it in, uh, therefore, to a much more traditional and a much more uh, conventional approach. And of course, the dramatic moment of Live 8 in 2005 was the appearance of Burhan Waldu as a young university student who had survived the famine, uh, in part because of the Live Aid interventions in 1984. And it was a dramatic moment, and it demonstrated the way in which that sort of focus on the face, that sort of focus on the individual, but also that recirculation of the same sort of imagery, uh, despite the time and place um, in which it's produced, raises a series of questions. It does demonstrate that particular 
visual forms serve particular political understandings. So the individual as deserving victim, and again the question of who's deserving and, and not deserving, in this case the representation of famine victims and so on, precisely because they're made to be passive, infantilized, without voice, that's how they become deserving because they could not progress at all without our assistance or our intervention. The, interve intervention, uh, uh, the individual as deserving victim worthy of our charity is perhaps the dominant representation of those marked as poor globally. And its reiteration, regardless of time or space, establishes our relationship to them. It's a relationship of humanitarian assistance or charitable giving rather than political question or critical analysis, let alone actually hearing the voice uh, of the person uh, whose story is being told. The difficult point, I think, is that this condition of focusing on the face and the individual is central not only to the representation of the poor, it's a conditional, uh, condition that's central to photographic representation of social issues generally, or at least that's how it has been uh, throughout, really, the history of documentary photography and photojournalism. If you think back in the late 19th century through to the 20th century and think about names like Jakob Rees, Lewis Hine, Dorothea Lange and the New Deal photographers, through to the black and white uh, reportage of famine in Africa and so on, all have focused quite literally on the face of poverty as a way of making a statement about social issues. So you have to ask the question, is it possible to represent so complex social issues without individualizing them in those faces and in those bodies. Now too often, of course, photography becomes kind of the subject of the debate and the lightning rod for, for cer certain uh, uh, critical views. And we shouldn't condemn documentary photography and photojournalism for any limitations that are inherent to its medium, but we might want to think about how those limits can be made more visible and how they can be transgressed. And that's an issue uh, for the technological and the aesthetic question of how images are produced and circulated. How, in other words, kind of some of the traditions of documentary and photojournalism uh, can be themselves sort of uh, pulled apart a little. And these are precisely the challenge that we set those um, who made submissions uh, to appear in the viewing restricted exhibition. And it's the challenge, certainly, that the five commissions that were, were given from the 80 uh, or more submissions that were received uh, have taken up. They've adopted a reflexive approach to the assignment of representing poverty in a range of global cities. So you have Jessica Dimmick's essay on New York, Mishka Henner's on London, Sharon Lovell's on Shanghai, Subhash Sharma's on Mumbai, and Ali Taptik's on Istanbul, each in a series, um, each trying to both visually address the issue differently but also offer their own reflections uh, about how they went about the process uh, and how they kind of took on the challenge of doing something different than simply recirculating some of the traditional uh, and conventional imagery. I was struck by one quote in the introduction to the yearbook um, which says, in thinking about the idea of the poor, it says, quote, their poverty is reproduced over and over again through obstacles actually constructed as a consequence of modernity. They are the victims not of a state of poverty, but of an ongoing process of impoverishment. And it seems to me that that is something that really resituates and repositions the way 
of thinking about poverty and it's uh, directly and indirectly that repositioning that the five photographers who are part of the exhibition um, have become part of. The photo stories demonstrate also how people who are locked into or find themselves in conditions uh, that we describe as poverty but really have to understand as a process of impoverishment, how those people negotiate that impoverishment and actually construct a meaning, meaningful life uh, in the process. And I think you know, most obviously that takes place um, perhaps in the images from Mumbai which focus on the leisure activities of people that are uh, found in what we would understand as quote a slum region and so on but to understand that those lives have depth and dimensions that are certainly missing from the traditional and conventional representations is certainly an achievement in that story. It's very obvious in the story I know best which is Sharon Lovell's uh, essay on the migrant workers in Shanghai and one of the things that attracts me to that story is that it's the way in which the state of impoverishment of those migrant workers is actually a function of the Chinese economic miracle, that the two go hand in hand together. One doesn't exist without the, the other. And also that their impoverishment includes much more than the question of shortages in income or the absence of dietary requirements that some might want to focus on as the identification and the meaning of poverty. It's about a whole series of issues. One of them is that there's a whole um, uh, set of practices of governmentality, in this case what's known as the household registration or HUCO system, um, which governs their access uh, to social services in cities uh, that they weren't born in or didn't grow up in, um, and so that they uh, have a much harder time once they've become migrants uh, pursuing uh, personal goals and so on, finding themselves still within the same country still with as citizens of that country, but having their citizenship limited in effect uh, by an internal um, uh, bureaucratic system. What comes out really clearly in that story is that there's no shortage of aspirations amongst those individuals. Um, and interestingly, I think most of those aspirations, although they might be talked about occasionally in terms of money and economics and so on, they're principally about sort of the trajectory of life, in particular, the trajectory of life for their children. So no shortage of aspirations, but there is a shortage of aspirations that might realistically be realized given their structural location and given the way they find themselves intertwined um, in a series uh, of practices not of their own making. But we don't see that in the visuals of the faces. And in Sharon's story and in the other stories, the focus is not on the visuals of the faces or the visuals of individuals, but of a whole series uh, of circumstances, a whole series of conditions, um, a whole series of practices and lives. We see, we see that, so not in their face or in their body, but in the stories that they themselves are actually telling us, in the voices we hear, in the reflexive writing uh, that's made about them. And that gives us something for both photography as a practice and political analysis to think about in relationship to the construction and representation of poverty how we can continue uh, to hear those voices visually. Thanks. Well, that was uh, a great tour de force, those four speakers. So we only, unfortunately, have 15 minutes for questions. But please do feel free. Maybe I'll take them in groups. Who would like to ask a question? Okay, there's somebody right at the back first. <laughs>
How's this? Good? Yeah. Hi. Uh, sort of bringing together the issue of deserving and undeserving as well as the methodology question. Uh, because, of course, a lot of policymakers wish to sort of disaggregate who we're going to help. We want to help the poor people, but we don't want to help the poor people who don't make effort. Yeah? So the World Bank recently has come out with a new way, amongst many new ways to measure poverty. And it's the inequality of opportunity. And they're trying to, as far as I understand, target the aspects of the outcomes that are, that are linked to a person's ethnicity or where they're from or whether their parents are poor. And the other component, which is their effort to get out of poverty. And I wonder, first of all, whether any of the panelists, or I guess Sally Stairs in particular, think this is feasible, first. Uh, and second, more broadly, whether, I don't know if I can express this right, whether it's, whether it's even a good idea as an approach to try to target poverty programs by picking out the ones that are poor because of their circumstances and not poor, the ones that are poor because they didn't make an effort. Thanks. Now, I'll ask Sally to answer it, nobody else has a question. <laughs> um, I should um, preface my answer with qualification that I'm a methodology person rather than a development or a poverty reduction per person. So, so my, my approach is my gut instinct to trying to, trying to capture that by means of statistical data. And so do I think they should? No, terrible idea, or, or at least incredibly <laughs> difficult. And, and, and generally, I think I, I put any, any health warning on any statistic which, um, which put, puts people in, into boxes according to which uh, resources are administered. I mean, statist I think the best use of, of statistical data is into trying, in, in trying to understand circumstances, trying to understand the relationship between your constraints and your opportunities and your reactions to those constraints and opportunities and so on and so forth. But, but when it's a classification exercise, it, it's terribly delicate. So, so I mean, um, my, my, my gut reaction is, is one of, uh, of extreme hesitation. Uh, but I qualify again with the, the response that I'm not in the position of, of allocating aid. So I have a different perspective on, on the, the problem. And to me, it seems like it's a very difficult problem. Um, yeah, maybe a little. Then it's interesting that you link those two ideas together, the inequality of opportunity and undeserving undeservingness, uh, in that I don't think they have been explicitly connected in a, in a UK context, where there, has been, there have been policies developed which are trying to look at the inequality of opportunity usually framed in language of life chances and looking at um, talk, discussing people having different life chances depending on the randomness of where you're born and to whom. Um, and so there, there are some policies which are trying to, to address that and, and certainly some of the early years programs um, seem to have some type of success but, but it's limited. Um, but programs for instance which target extra resources to schools in areas um, statistically defined as deprived and so on, have been shown to, 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 have, to be able to address some of the issues that that, that school confronts which need extra resources. And by having a blanket allocation of resources across the board, then that's actually unequal because people need different things. 
So somehow addressing inequality, I, I think, uh, inequality of opportunity um, is probably useful, but it's incredibly difficult. And certainly in the UK context, whenever anything is put forward, then a media response is often, from certain parts of it anyway, is to see it as an attack on the middle classes. Uh, and th that it's rather than it being a support for people on lower incomes uh, with less opportunity, it's an attack on those who, is, uh, um, who, who are already getting those opportunities. I'm not sure if there would be the same reception to, um, to, to programmes that were on a, on a global scale. But any linkage of it to deserving and undeservingness, and that I think would be really dangerous, and I'd agree totally with Sally that that's not a track to go down at all. Um, because what, you know, who's to judge? issues and at what stage do you become undeserving so I have one question down there uh, thank you for all the presentations uh, and my question regards more the, the other end of the spectrum of our social relations which is like the representations of the rich because uh, this is not often uh, like deconstructed as, uh, deconstructed as much as we do now, but perhaps our understanding based on visual representations of what it is to be rich as well, or to be in this very narrow group of what we consider elitist life and very comfortable life is actually very far from what, like in reality, is far from what we think of it. Uh, my boyfriend, neither I am rich nor my family, but, uh, or people would consider us rich, but my boyfriend deals with a lot of people from the high, <laughs> uh, from higher classes, I would say, and deals with many of their personal stories, let's say. And it appears to me from his, uh, from his narratives that it's really, uh, it can, the life in these very rich classes can be just as bleak and repetitive or uh, like, depressing <laughs> as it might be for poor people. And I'm wondering whether you see correspondences in the, the representation of uh, the rich people uh, and w what would be the meaning of deconstructing it or looking closer at it and what are maybe the, what, what are the problems with statistics about it, the media representations, et cetera, et cetera, all the points that you mentioned. Thank you. Well, just two things really. I mean, one is that um, in photographically, I don't think we see many representations in the same way that one uh, of so-called rich as one does of so-called poor. Um, part for, I would say for two reasons. One is they control access to their lives much better, <laughs> uh, and they they exercise that authority and power and and don't make themselves visible uh, in the same way uh, as a conscious decision. Um, and then the other is that I think that there's an interesting thing to think about in terms of how the history of documentary photography from the 1930s you know, is linked with a particular politics, a particular understanding of social formations, uh, and has, has taken traditionally its subjects to be the marginalized, the poor, the excluded, and so on, uh, as a politics of making that visible, bearing witness, etc. And so the technology itself has led to a concentration on one subject matter kind of over another um, as a cultural technology in that sense, not, not as a kind of a technical issue. Um, I think that what the, what the stories in the exhibition do is, is kind of, you know, try and get out from under that to some extent and, and work through that to some extent. But it's, uh, I'm aware actually in particular of a, a Bangladeshi photographer, Shahid Al-Alam, um, who has done a series on 
the upper class in Britain, but I, I haven't seen it published that widely. Okay, suddenly we, when well, we only have five minutes, we have several people, so I'm going to very quickly give you, you and Jan, did you have your hand up? Okay, we've got, okay, a, a minute each, and then... Uh, um, just wondering if you think that poverty is inevitable, that pe some people are always going to be better off, others worse off. And therefore, if you think the threshold of sort of where poverty is is just going to keep rising. Yeah. Yep. Um, and how do you think you can actually move, um, move away from this sort of essentialized, infantilized representation of poverty, um, not just through sort of exhibitions like this, but actually um, at, the, at the NGO level and the level of representation because it's still sort of required instrumentally it seems in terms of the way they represent poverty um, and that sort of that's, that seems a big issue to address yeah, I'm wondering if I could draw out from you a little bit more um, what you would regard as one of the most politically positive, progressive uh, representations of poverty, numerical, visual, theatrical, musical, uh, and, and why? Okay, well, I'm just going to go around the table and see if anyone wants to say anything in response to those three questions. Sally? I think most of my, my answers to those questions, I'm thinking of yours first, what is poverty inevitable and will the threshold keep rising? It entirely depends on how, how you conceptualize it. And I think lots of, lots of the questions which are about poverty relate to the way that we, you understand it and conceptualize it. Um, so also in relation to what are the most politically positive or aggressive uh, representations of, of poverty. I mean, as a, as a methodology person, I'm not really qualified to just I guess just to say what's a, a good and a bad representation of poverty, but I can draw attention to some of the, the problems, the technical problems which are involved in, in, in capturing those concepts uh, with data. That's a bit of a, uh, I'm passing on swiftly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, in terms of inevitable, then certainly aspects of it are not inevitable, no. Um, a third of the UK population think it is, but that there's no reason at all why we have to have a, an income distribution within the world or within a country that, that is uh, as wide as it is at the moment. So poverty can be eradicated. There will be aspects of poverty of experience that will always be around, but I think that's a very different issue from coping on a very, on a very low income and having very different opportunities. So no, I don't think it's inevitable, so therefore efforts to eradicate it are worthwhile. Um, in terms of shifting representation and what makes for the most positive representations, then I think it's when, when people who are experiencing poverty have control over the representation, then you get the strongest images of it, and, and that's the only way of actually changing it. I mean, to be fair to the NGOs and humanitarian organisations, there's been a lot of work done over the years to try to develop codes of conduct for images and, and to put forward images of people coping with extreme situations and with poverty as, as well, and many debates between um, policy and fundraising departments uh, across organisations. But I think it's putting control into the hands in, in the same way as the rich have control over what images are portrayed and they will sue people who, who misrepresent them or what they perceive as misrepresentation. Um, 
people who are on low incomes and who are experiencing poverty need that same control. There is an NGO that's trying to do that, that's pursuing people, pursuing some of the images that uh, are used by NGOs and others and, and making sure that their uh, that payments and that consent has been fully given by the, the people who are being used in campaigns. I agree with Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one brief response to two very complex questions. Um, I actually don't think it's all that helpful in a way to talk, think about positive as the flip sides to, to or, or think about this as negative with positive as a flip side because positive can just be the reverse of the problem and have its own set of problems that are actually related to that as though there's one domain in which you represent things badly and then you represent them accurately and this is, this is positive. I think the thing is to actually represent things much more complexly, um, both with the voice of those who, who are the subjects, um, and to think about the context much more, um, which means moving beyond single image to series, which means putting it in context with text, which means literally hearing the voice of the subjects, uh, so on and so forth. And they're both technical challenges and aesthetic challenges uh, and, and so on. But they don't have, uh, you, you don't reach a point where you come up with a good image because the thing about images is, is they function differently in different places at different times. Um, and you can still, I think, problematically, even make a case for some of the worst images functioning in, for NGOs to do decent things in particular times. And that's, you know, that's a difficult issue. So I, I, I don't think the positive versus negative framing of the problem um, helps us all that much. Thanks. And I just want to make a couple of final points relating to these questions. I mean, one is, of course, poverty isn't inevitable. Of course, it's about our social relationships. And I think one of the big problems of the last few decades of neoliberalism is that we've moved away from thinking about poverty as not poverty per se, but as inequality, as injustice as systematic and more thought of poverty as something out there, a problem. So all this kind of targeting is dealing with the poor as a special problem and unrelated to the rich and unrelated to the rules and to market relationships. And I suppose the most important thing we can try to do is to try to show in very practical terms the way those relationships make it very difficult for people to stop being poor. Then if you look at the positive image, I think I was really touched by, and, and if you go outside and look at the pictures, these wonderful pictures from Mumbai of people, the kinds of leisure pursuits that poor people have. So there's one guy who loves looking after pigeons, and there's another who's absolutely loves betting on the horses and he says you know when I win it's winning the lottery I've forgotten the term the lottery of life and he looks really happy and I think what that positive image is it is a positive image but what it does is make you realize gosh this is not just a poor person <laughs> this is somebody with interests and so it's somebody you're more likely to listen to and I think that's very important about that kind of a representation. So with all, we've really come to the end now, but thank you very much, everybody, for coming. I just want to say that this is the first in a series of events. 
Jessica Dimmocks, who's, who's very powerful and very depressing pictures of New York, um, is going to be talking tomorrow. I don't know what time. And we're really very delighted that she and Mishka Hennett and Sharon Lovell, who did